0: At the end of a lane a drive opens traced along the path with strong oaks that pan out into an expansive forest two miles in as the oaks become more sparse the east turret of a great home becomes visible to the naked eye and as the carriage brings you closer the front face of a great stone mansion becomes visible perfectly landscaped upon a great expanse of soft green land with perfect ornamentation in all the right places a pop of rose bushes all abloom in pinks and whites, crisp topiaries, and a great hedge maze flanked to the left. In its center, an immaculately polished statue of Prometheus. The house itself, whitewashed so thoroughly that you could lick a biscuit from it, boasted bright, clean windows and a grand oak door that opened to its visitors on a majestic marble hall, all a-glitter with the natural light from the windows. The crown jewel of the home, a great spiral staircase, lounges in the corner to the right to the immediate left is a grand sitting room decorated in the plushest red and pink velvets a place where the gorgeous mrs ramsey entertains visitors at tea through there the doors fold open to a luxurious ballroom cleared away and under sheets from the winter months but in late spring and summer opens up through french doors to a cultivated courtyard and tulip garden where couples sneak off to confess feelings and make clandestine marriage proposals are sometimes regretted sometimes not beyond the ballrooms it's a family dining room and beyond that the kitchens the servants quarters are connected to the kitchen by a series of back doors that lead to hidden chambers on the uppermost floor of the grand estate if one decided though to have gone up the grand staircase in the foyer one would come to a landing that branches off into two distinct wings the west holding the rooms of the family including Mrs. Ramsey herself, her husband, Mr. Ramsey, and their two sons, Henry and Charles. To the east wing, however, where very few save Mr. Ramsey ever traverse, are the study and billiard room that often house the acquaintances of the man of the house during parties his wife loves to throw. The walls, since made of heavy stone, are mostly soundproof. The master of the house loves to tell his guests that the foundation of the great estate is from the remnant of a fortress from the Norman invasions. No one usually thinks too hard about this after being charmed by cigars and expensive brandy. A keen observer, though, none among the friends of Mr. Ramsay, would notice that behind the bookcase in Mr. Ramsay's study was a door, and behind that door is a dark staircase leading up to the east turret. If one, being both adventurous and brave, climbed the staircase, one would walk for some time until one arrived at a door locked tight. Pressing your ear to the door, you'd hear nothing, as the door and walls were completely soundproof. If Providence entrusted you also with a key, you would open the door to a dusky and silent chamber. As you lit a candle that you invariably brought with you for such an occasion, your light would shine on a makeshift prison. The inhabitant, you ask? Long ago, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey had a daughter, Adeline a great beauty who herself experienced a clandestine proposal and romance in the tulip garden on a fateful summer night. When her belly began to grow and her lover, one who came to regret his hasty proposal, left town, there was only one solution. The town was led to believe that the beloved Adeline was killed in a stable accident, but instead she was exiled to the prison in the East Turret and driven mad by solitude in the company of her starved infant. She was chained to the wall that protected the one servant who delivered one meal a day to the hidden room the rest of the family save the youngest boy who really believed his sister dead just pretended that their daughter never existed their mistake though occurred on christmas eve seven years after imprisoning their adeline the trusted servant and a vision from god or so he told himself after being slighted for a christmas bonus snuck a drought into Adeline's dinner and later, when she slept, he unchained her and left her door unlocked. From there, he left the home with some very expensive heirlooms and was never seen again. The next morning, the stable boy found each member of the Ramsey family slain with their throats cut in their beds. Believed to be the work of the servant, the magistrate never discovered the prison in the East Turret and they never discovered that Adeline still lurked there waiting for the next family. Hey all you ghastly ghosts, I'm Ashley and this is Goth Gal, a podcast where I explore gothic literature and critical theory in its analysis. The piece at the beginning was by me, and in it I hope to explore the idea of the woman in the attic, popularized by the novel Jane Eyre. For the last two episodes, we focused on the castle of Otranto one we talked about the portraiture and another Hippolyta. In today's episode, we're going to finish up Otranto, finding out what happens to our hero. I will go through this pretty rapidly for the sake of time, but please note the podcast does contain profanity and references to trauma, rape, violence, and incest. Listener discretion is advised. last time with father jerome thinking if he could sow some seeds of jealousy about Isabel and the peasant it might buy her and hippolyta some time this backfired though and manfred orders the youth to be brought before him manfred then questions a the kid and we find out his name is theodore the nomenclature here is interesting theodore means gift of god and it is a name that seems to pop up in gothic novels again and again matilda too it's almost like writers can't think of any original names Personally, I haven't seen Manfred's name reappear, though. Can't imagine why. Theodore confesses that Isabella found him in the vault the previous night, but he never met her before then. But she told him she was in danger and needed help. Manfred, of course, is like, and you believed, a silly girl? And in true chivalric fashion, Theodore says that whenever a woman needs his help, he protects her. It's important to know that during the questioning, Matilda just happens to be walking by at the time behind some wall. And when she sees him, remember she only heard his voice at the window earlier, she mistakes Theodore for the picture of Alfonso the Great. During this recognition, her father commands Theodore to be beheaded, Matilda faints, and Bianca overreacts and claims that she's dead. There's a whole scene, and Manfred kind of rolls his eyes at this, though, and just orders his daughter to be carried back to her apartment and goes back to the beheading. Father Jerome, nearby, realizes it's his fault that this youth is going to die, so he asks to give him his last rites. The friar begs forgiveness from the boy, but Manfred is impatient to kill him, so Theodore unbuttons his shirt to say his prayers, for whatever reason, and what does Father Jerome see but the mark of a bloody arrow, and he cries out, Gracious heaven, it is my child, my Theodore! Here is where we all like to pause at this moory moment in the story. How ironic is it that this random peasant who just happened to make a remark about the helmet when Conrad died, becomes embroiled in such drama, and then just happens to be the friar's son, identified by a scar on his chest? Also worth reminding again is that Theodore bears a likeness to the portrait of Alfonso the Great. You may be wondering, how does a friar in the Catholic Church have a son? Well, Manfred wonders the same thing. It turns out this friar used to be of noble blood. He was named the Count of Falconara. In true Gothic fashion, Theodore was orphaned by his mother. Jerome, though now wants to save Theodore, considers what he can give Manfred for his safety. Fortunately, Theodore is made of hardier stuff and says he would rather die than resign Isabella to Manfred's care. In a weird turn of events, Manfred decides to pardon Theodore. The story claims he is not unmoved by the scene between the father and the son, It's almost like the author really wants us to know that Manfred is bad, but he isn't that bad. Boys will be boys, am I right? At that moment, though, they are all interrupted by a sound of a trumpet. The mysterious helmet nods three times. Manfred gets scared and begs Jerome to pray for him. Like, honestly, I don't know how many supernatural events it takes to make this man get the picture, but apparently far too many. It turns out there is a visitor to Otranto. They claim Manfred is an usurper, but Manfred decides to see these visitors and tells Jerome to bring the princess back, or he will kill his son, Forgetting his pardon from three seconds ago. The visitor apparently is a knight on behalf of Isabella's father, Frederick, who claims that Manfred bribed her guardians during his absence. Well, as it turns out, Frederick is the nearest in blood to Alfonso the Great. Sneaky, sneaky Manfred was trying to marry Isabella first to his son and then to himself, so he could be the rightful heir of Otranto. Manfred decides to play it cool, though, and decides to wait for Frederick to arrive. Here, in the interest of time, I will go through the remainder of the vents. Jerome goes back to the abbey, finds Isabella missing. The knights arrive at the Otranto. Manfred lets him into the castle. A gigantic sword falls to the ground. Manfred tries to convince the knights that Alfonso the Great bequeathed Otranto to his grandfather, who was his servant. He tries to manipulate the knights into letting him keep Isabella, saying he's related to his wife. He just found out, poor guy. And that he thought Frederick was dead in battle. He's interrupted again, saying Jerome and several friars are here to speak to him, confessing Isabella is gone. Lots of interruptions. A call back to Eve Sedgwick's claims and the coherence of Gothic convictions that the Gothic is rife with the unspeakable. Unspeakable here meaning literally not being able to speak because people keep interrupting. The knights rush out to find Isabella, and Manfred decides to accompany them. In the meantime, Matilda frees Theodore, thinking he is in love with Isabella, but it kinda looks like he's in love with her. Theodore rushes to the convent and then to the forest, when who does he find in a cave but the lovely Isabella? The knights discover the cave. Theodore goes out to guard it, thinking he is saving Isabella from Manfred. He wounds a knight, who, surprise, turns out to be Isabella's father, Frederick, in disguise. They carry Frederick to the castle, and Isabella follows behind. Thankfully, Frederick recovers, and Manfred strikes him a deal, that he can marry Matilda, and then Manfred can marry Isabella. Frederick likes the idea of a young bride, Matilda, and agrees. Matilda and Isabella find out they both like Theodore, awkward, but Matilda is now destined to marry Frederick, who she doesn't really want to marry. Hippolyta goes to consult Friar Jerome at the church. Manfred meets her there, and then while they're there, three drops of blood fall from the statue of Alfonso's nose. The monk claims that the blood of Alfonso will never mix with that of Manfred, who goes home and is troubled by Theodore's resemblance to Alfonso the Great. Hippolyta agrees to divorce if the church grants it. Manfred attempts to question Bianca about the relationship between Theodore and Isabella, and he gets nowhere. After a night of drinking and revelry, Frederick realizes he is increased with passion, gross, that means he's horny, at the thought of Matilda and goes to try and find Hippolyta to make sure she is really going to divorce Manfred so he can marry Matilda. He thinks he finds her praying, but really finds a figure that looks like her, but with fleshless jaws and empty sockets. This freaks the guy out, and Manfred, who came to find him, is pushed aside, and Frederick is like, "Uh uh-uh, nope, not marrying Matilda. Suddenly suspicious that Isabella is going to try and meet Theodore at the church and drunk himself, Manfred steals away to the church where he hears two people whispering and thinks it's Isabella and Theodore. He takes out his dagger, rushes upon them, and strikes his own daughter in the breast. They take Matilda to the castle, and Theodore begs to be married to her before she dies. It turns out Theodore is the rightful heir of Otranto. He starts to tell the story and is interrupted by Matilda's death. And then the walls of the castle are suddenly torn down followed by a clap of thunder literally like a giant helmet crushed your son to death a portrait literally came alive thunder destroyed your house it's time to give up manfred the equity isn't worth it bro finally on the last page we get the news that alfonso the great who died in the holy land was poisoned by manfred's grandfather before that though alfonso set sail and was blown to sicily and he met a girl named Victoria and married in secret and left her pregnant to continue his journey. She had a daughter, who then married Father Jerome before he was a friar, and Theodore was the offspring. Manfred abdicates, Hippolyta takes the veil, and when the time was right, Theodore married Isabella. Wow, that's a lot. Lots of drama going on in this short book, but there are a lot of themes that Walpole includes here that resonate in later Gothic works, among them the supernatural. In Walpole's Gothic, he doesn't explain the supernatural, which during the Enlightenment period was one of the reasons he got so much flack. Also, if you know how many times a character goes to tell a story or reveal a secret and they get er interrupted, that serves to prolong suspense and keep you reading, most of the time finding out the big secret in the last few pages. You'll also notice that the random peasant turns out to be a prince, and that also happens a lot. The Gothic genre is typical of the bourgeoisie of England, who were very anti-aristocratic. You see that Theodore is aristocratic, but he was raised as a peasant. As Camilla Elliott states, Theodore blends aristocratic with bourgeois virtues, manifesting aristocratic virtues of valor, chivalry, and gallantry. He more prominently displays middle-class morals of veracity, sincerity, resignation, piety, forgiveness, conscience, chastity, modesty, frankness, warmth and zeal, eschewing the aristocratic virtues of mastery and conquest. So, for the bourgeoisie, it was important to be of noble blood, but have bougie manners. It also may have been why Conrad is depicted as so sickly. Since Manfred represents typical violent aristocracy, his bloodline is tainted. It's a very confusing commentary in which you think that maybe the bourgeoisie hate the rich, but you know they really just want to be them, in typical Mean Girls fashion. Also, if we look at the fate of Matilda, we can attempt to draw some conclusions. We have an odd juxtaposition with Isabella being granted agency in a somewhat happy ending after enduring a whole novel of suffering while Matilda is stabbed by her father. Remember in an earlier episode when Matilda disobeyed her father when he told her not to knock on his door? She also contradicted him when she set Theodore free and spied on him when he was questioning Theodore. Finally, sneaking off in secret, she is stabbed. Is Walpole making some commentary on how women ought to behave, even if their fathers are awful? I find myself unsatisfied with Matilda's fate in this book. It's not that I expect a man writing in 1764 to be a pioneer in women's rights, but it seems that Matilda has long suffered at the greed of her father. She's taken a back seat to her sickly brother, and when she finally falls in love, her own father kills her. We can chalk this up to the prophecy that Manfred's bloodline won't inherit the castle, But I still think it's a bum rap for Matilda, and seeing as how many readers of the Gothic genre were women, the novel kind of reads as a warning to women about the dangers of subverting the patriarchy. There is no explicit line that says ladies, don't disobey men, but there's basically a whole plot revolving around it. And sure, Manfred also goes to live among monks at the end, but he's never really punished for all his misdeeds. I think the readers are all to assume that Isabella finds happiness with Theodore at the end after he is over Matilda but I'm not sure if I would be okay after being traumatized by my father-in-law. I'm not sure how many of you have actually read The Castle of Otranto. It's short and ridiculous and a lot of fun to read, but I'm definitely glad that the genre evolves from Walpole's vision. I also love that Matthew Lewis takes the name of Matilda and makes it the name of a demon in his novel The Monk, published in 1796, two years after Anne Radcliffe publishes The Mysteries of Udolpho. If you have time, The Monk draws on the tradition of both Walpole and Radcliffe, but most people were drawing from Radcliffe, known as the Mother of the Gothic. I won't be covering Radcliffe for a while, but she's worth a read if you have extra time. It's also important to note that different branches of the Gothic begin to emerge here. We get Horror Gothic, Female Gothic, and Romanticism, which I argue is Gothic-esque. So with more subterraneous passages, haunted corners, and floating helmets to explore, My hope is to get to know the genre, along with all of you. Thank you for listening to episode 4 of Goth Gal. I know I went pretty fast in this episode, but in hindsight, I probably should have paced the spacing of the novel a bit better in the other episodes. What can I say? I'm still learning. I hope you enjoyed The Castle of Otranto. It's worth a read if you have the time. Next, I'm moving on to Charlotte Dacker's poem, The Skeleton Priest, in conjunction with both Tim Burton's Corpse Bride and a Jewish folktale called The Little Finger. It would be great if you could peruse these with me so we can study these together. I know that I, personally, can always use a reason to rewatch Corpse Bride. If you have any suggestions for the podcast or if you want to submit your own creative piece for me to read aloud, please contact me at goth underscore gal underscore podcast on Instagram. Until then, remember to feed the monster under your bed, I bet he's hungry.